0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season seven of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson that took place at the same time on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Fault's criminal courts building in downtown Los Angeles. As these trials wind down, we have bifurcated our coverage of them. We remain on verdict watch on the trial of Harvey Weinstein, jurors in that trial have been deliberating for eight and a half days or a total of 37 hours and are off on Thursday and Friday of this week. So they will resume on Monday at 930 a.m. On today's episode, we present my conversation with blogger Tony Ortega about his interview with the jury foreman in the trial of Danny Masterson. That's all coming up right after the break. Previously on Jury Duty, we heard Brittany Bookbinder's two-part interview with Underground Bunker blogger Tony Ortega about the Danny Masterson trial. Last week, Ortega interviewed the jury foreman in the Masterson trial on Chris Shelton's Sensibly Speaking podcast, and I had the opportunity to interview Tony about that conversation. And now, here is my interview with Tony Ortega. Tony Ortega, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, Carrie. thanks for having me on. Tony, you've been on with Brittany several times now, and we really appreciate your presence here. Why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to cover the Church of Scientology generally and the Masterson rape trial specifically? Sure.
1: I have been a journalist since the mid-90s, and almost right away, I got a fun Scientology story fell in my lap. And I was working for a company then that it was kind of a magazine style. And so I was able to write about a number of different subjects. But over time, I kind of began to specialize that that became one of my areas of expertise. So that by the time I got to the Village Voice as the editor-in-chief there in 2007, that was something that I was starting to do more and more online. So that's, I became, you know, a little bit known for that, that, that every day I try to put up something online about what's going on with the Church of Scientology somewhere in the world. And, you know, by just getting those sources and learning about what's going on, I was able in March 2017, and by then I was writing for my own website to break the news that Danny Masterson was being investigated by the LAPD. And right away in that first story, Carrie, I was looking at the way that these women were complaining about how the LAPD was handling the investigation. And that's really been sort of the theme of my reporting on this case in the last five years is just the struggles these women have been through just to get to a trial. I mean, they've endured so much in the way of setbacks and difficulties with the LAPD and the district attorney's office. And now they got a mistrial and a trial. But you know, it had been quite a while since I sort of established that, that I was going to be covering this as a daily beat. And then I actually went out to Los Angeles for the trial. And my little role, since it wasn't on camera, the thing I came up with was I, I just decided to give my readers as close as that I could the feeling of being in the courtroom. So I just started typing up everything everyone said. And that was sort of my role in that was multiple times a day. I was reporting from the courtroom about everything that was being said in the courtroom. And so I think people really appreciated that because the people who are into this story want every detail.
0: Absolutely. Was the Church of Scientology as a subject matter personal to you, or did you come to cover it as a beat in the way that somebody covers the Catholic Church or organized crime or city hall? Right. No, I have no personal involvement in Scientology. I was never in, in it or anything.
1: But like I said, I, I had just started as a reporter at a newspaper in Phoenix, Arizona, of all places. And this amazing story about a man named Rick Ross, who's you know kind of a cult expert, just sort of fell in my lap. And you know, I'm from Los Angeles originally, so I had a, some slight awareness of what Scientology was. And I just became fascinated by it. And I right away was able to get some very good sources. And today, you know, I get tips from all around the world. World. And it's just something that became something I specialized in. And the way you just described it is exactly how I do is that, you know, some people cover Congress, some people cover the mafia. I cover the Church of Scientology. It's, I'm just a reporter on a beat. Yes, yeah, so that makes perfect sense.
0: So tell me how this interview with the juror on the Sensibly Speaking podcast came about.
1: Yeah, uh, Chris Shelton is a former Scientology Sea Org official who left the church and almost right away began exposing it for the things he knew. He's a real expert on on what it's like to spend years and years inside the church working for it. And he's got a podcast and videos that he puts out all the time, and it turns out that the daughter of the jury foreman in the Danny Masterson trial was a fan of Chris Shelton's. And she also was a reader of my website, my Substack, the underground bunker. And so after the trial, she reached out to Chris and said, hey, my my father was the jury foreman. Would you like to talk to him? And so Chris then, of course, took that. I mean, what, you know, journalists wouldn't take that, you know, and so he talked to the juror. And then Chris reached out to me because he knew he needed somebody. Well, first of all, I was in the courtroom and I could confirm who this person was. And also, that, you know, I, I know the case really well. And so I really appreciated that and thank Chris that he brought me in. And then you saw I did most of the, ask most of the questions. And so that was just a great setup for us to ask him about what happened.
0: Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. We now return to my interview with Tony Ortega. People can hear the entirety of the interview, which lasts about 50 to 60 minutes, I think, on the Sensibly Speaking podcast. But would you take us through the major themes of the interview and specifically how the jury four person came to view each of the counts and each of the women who testified? Sure. I mean, the first thing I wanted to know, you know, Carrie, we're sitting there in the courtroom day
1: after day, and we just have no idea what's going on behind those closed doors. And the first thing I just wanted to know was what that experience was like, and even before deliberations, and he was kind enough to explain sort of the environment and how they all got along. And then I took him through each of the three victims, Jane Doe one, and then Jane Doe three was actually second on the stand, and then Jane Doe two. And I summarized briefly what each of their allegations were. And and then asked him what the conversation was like in the courtroom because this was a mistrial this was a hung jury Jane Doe one had two guilty ten not guilty Jane Doe three had five guilty seven not guilty and Jane Doe two had four guilty eight not guilty and so I wasn't so much asking him his personal view. As the jury foreman, we were asking him, what did you observe? What was it that was causing this disagreement? Why couldn't this jury either come to acquittals or convictions on these three? And so we went through each one and he described what the people who voted not guilty had a problem with in the testimony. And then once we had gone through those three, then I asked him more general questions about the people who were involved, the different attorneys, and some things I had heard about what might have influenced the jury. And he assured me, you know, Carrie, you know, you hear a lot of things when you're doing a case like that. And I had heard some things about that. Maybe the mass, you know, the Masterson showed up in numbers every day. And I, you know, it was suggested to me that this large showing by the family might have influenced the jury or Danny himself and how he appeared. I was also told that maybe there was a lot of chatter in the hallway that might've influenced them. So we went through each of those things and he denied that. What he did was he really described a situation where this jury worked very hard to go over all the evidence, to stick to just the evidence, to give each other time to speak. And he, he actually described their methods. And then what he described were the problems with the cases were really the inconsistencies that defense attorney Philip Cohen had pointed to in his cross-examination. And that was the nature of this case was that it took a long time for this case to come to court. And the prosecution was prepared to argue that, that was because of the fear these women had for the Church of Scientology. But Cohen, the defense attorney, really, really didn't focus on that he really didn't focus on the time that had passed at all he was just pointing out that you know Jane Doe one for example gave statements in 2003 and 2004 and 2017 and then her current testimony and he was pointing to things that you know that were different in those and he did the same thing for the other two and this jury foreman really emphasized that that was the problem they had with coming up with a guilty verdict was that there were these differences and you know I have to say some of them really surprised me. Me and I I found it kind of disappointing. Let me just give you one example with Jane Doe two. Jane Doe two testified that she had been texting with Masters and he had demanded she come over his house and she did. But she said she'd laid some ground rules about what they were going to do. She'd have a drink, they'd have a discussion, but there would be no physical contact. And what the jury apparently found so significant was her mother testified that she was excited to go over there. And I was kind of shocked that the jury foreman brought that up because even if Jane Doe, too, was excited to go see Danny Masterson I don't understand what that has to do with the fact that once she got over there and he had her drink this glass of wine and she was suspiciously intoxicated, that he then violently raped her. I, I don't, I don't understand whether you know it doesn't. You know the fact that the jury was affected by the fact that she, that her mother said she was excited. That tells me the prosecution did not do its job explaining about consent and explaining about it. Really doesn't matter what it was in her mind when she went over there. And the jury foreman himself at the end of the interview had really come to the conclusion that the prosecution had needed to couch these things more skillfully, had needed to prepare them better for the testimony that was coming. And I think this interview ended up being very useful to the prosecution in a retrial because the jury foreman pointed out numerous ways that the prosecution could be improved in a retrial.
0: It's interesting, I came away from it with a slightly different take. I really came away from it pessimistic that a prosecution could ever get a conviction in this case. Partly because of the need to prove two of the three counts, and partly because of the effectiveness of the defense that irrespective of how powerful Reinhold Mueller's opening was or how effective he was articulating the reasons for the discrepancies, the discrepancies in the various statements will always be there. And I felt there will always be jurors who are going to, whether it's Cohen or some other defense attorney, seize upon those discrepancies when they're pointed out and create a level of doubt that achieves reasonableness. And so I came away from it far more pessimistic that the prosecution could ever tick all the boxes for 12 people to agree that Danny Masterson's guilty on at least two of those three counts. I understand what you're saying. One of the things I I did a little
1: bit of this with, with the jury foreman was explained to some things that he had not heard, and that's the thing is I, I'm I'm aware of so many things that the jury wasn't told. You know, I'll give you another example. Like I said, the Jane Doe two thing is kind of outrageous to me.
0: Can you quickly synopsize the Jane Doe two count? Sure. Jane Doe, too, is an actress who knew
1: Danny socially, and a friend brought them together at a bar one night, and he demanded her phone number in a very aggressive way, which she thought was odd, but she thought maybe he thinks that's flirting. She gave him her number. Over the next few days, he then began texting her in a very aggressive manner. You're coming over. You're bringing a bathing suit. You're getting in my jacuzzi. And again, she thought this was ridiculous, but maybe this is what he thinks is flirting, and she ultimately told him, I'll come over, but I'm not getting in your jacuzzi. And she was really adamant that she laid these ground rules. She went to his house, he immediately handed her this large glass of red wine and demanded she drink it and she testified that, you know, she said, hey uh, this is a beautiful house, can I get a tour? And he just said, no, just drink the wine. And 15, 20 minutes later, she was like losing consciousness. I mean, just very suspicious. He got her into the jacuzzi, they were they were making out, and you know, heavy petting, and she described it saying that, okay, she allowed this to go on, but she made it clear to him just no sex, and they ended up going to a shower and she was shocked that he inserted his penis in her, and she was was really upset with him but then he commanded her to go to the bedroom and in the bedroom they went back to heavy petting and she was testifying that she felt okay I think I can control this and then she testified that he finally said okay that's it flipped her over on her hands and knees and began violently attacking her from behind and she talked about him being like a jackhammer and pounding her and she was you know yelling no 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 the whole time and then she ended up staying at his place talking to him for hours later and she's talked about that that she had really tried to Process what had happened, and afterwards she really didn't want to think of it as a rape. And they had an expert come on who talked about that—that when women are raped by a friend or acquaintance or a person in a relationship with them, they'll have a very different reaction to it than if they're raped by a stranger. And that it's really common for things like the woman to hang around or even have post-incident contacts. So that's the basics of her allegation. And Cohen, of course, dug into the fact that the mother said she. She had gone over there saying she was excited to see Danny. And then also after three days when he had not called her, she called him and that they had some subsequent post incident contacts where she asked him at one point to set her up with a friend of his, things like that.
0: And so you were saying you had awareness of things that the jury didn't hear in evaluating. I wanted
1: to give you another example. In Jane Doe 1, for example, Cohen repeatedly hammered her in his closing about this 2003 document. I mean, a large part of his case against her was that in 2003, she had described the incident for the Church of Scientology, and that today her story is different than that account. But I was surprised that Mueller didn't make more of the situation that that 2003 document was written with the Scientology ethics officer editing her and telling her she couldn't use certain words, she couldn't use the word rape. I just I think that document is so compromised and yet both Cohen in his closing and Earl the jury foreman in our interview kept citing it like that's the best version of what happened. And so it just told me that the DA needs to do a much better job explaining these previous versions and how some of these inconsistencies really are not inconsistencies. So that's why I'm less skeptical about it than you are, Carrie.
0: Did the prosecution call the person from the Church of Scientology who helped prepare that document with Jane Doe number 1? No, and I was told
1: that the DA did not want to call anybody that they expected would lie on the stand. And an ethics officer from Scientology, that's like, there's no way you're going to get any truth out of that guy. So I just don't think he wasted his time with them.
0: And did the prosecution ask Jane Doe, number one, about the preparation of that statement at all? I don't know. I mean, that's
1: the thing that struck me was that in his closing, Cohen kept using that document over and over. And I thought, you know, didn't they explain how this document was prepared? I don't know that they did. And obviously, Mueller didn't do it in a way that allowed the jury to think that it was a legitimate document because the jury foreman was quoting it at me.
0: I think the reason that I'm more pessimistic than you are is that I heard in the jury foreman's words, implicit biases that led me to believe that he falls into a sort of category of person who interprets allegations of sexual assault from a particular mindset that, you know, for lack of a better word, is a pre-MeToo mindset. Right. So I wonder if in your conversations with him, you got into any of that, into whether the jury in their deliberations got into, do you believe the woman or do you implicitly question these kinds of allegations? He didn't express that. I did find it
1: surprising that they basically disregarded the expert. Now, they purposely set it up so the expert had not talked to these women. She was speaking generally about women who are raped by people they know or people they're in a relationship with. But I thought it was uncanny the way she described things that fit exactly what these women were saying. But the jury foreman just didn't find it persuasive. He said that you've got an expert with a study. Well, you could find another expert with a study that says the opposite. And you know what I didn't ask him, Carrie, and I wish I had. The main Makeup of the jury started out seven men and five women and ended up six each. And the jury foreman mentioned both men and women in his interview with me, but I never asked him to break down the voting along gender lines. So I don't know how that went. But you know, the, the attitude towards the expert, the blatant thing about Jane Doe 2 being excited on her way to a house where she was raped as being sort of something important suggested to me what you're saying, that this was a group that saw things in a pre too way and that the prosecutor was running into some classic issues that make sexual assault cases in general difficult. So, you know, it's the kind of thing that the DA needs to keep in mind that, you know, there's not just Scientology they have to deal with here, but they have to deal with these attitudes about whether a woman is raped or not based on what's in the
0: state of her mind when she goes there. In your interview, I can now pinpoint what I was hearing. I was hearing echoes of the dialogue in this country during Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings and the allegations by Christine Blasey Ford. Whether it was a factor or not, the distance in time from the allegations, the relative youthfulness of Danny Masterson at the time, I just could hear in the way that he was approaching the facts as he interpreted them, as he heard them. And I'm speaking of the jury foreperson I could hear the echoes of that debate. And while I personally was nonplussed by the reaction of what I perceived to be the other side of the argument during the Kavanaugh hearings, I heard the echoes of that great divide in his description of the impassioned deliberations that they were having.
1: Yeah. I mean, to me, the important thing was that They had taken their job very seriously. They had obviously reviewed the evidence very carefully. And then they had these divisions. And, you know, that's a great question is how much are they bringing to that? You know, how much of it is their own attitudes, towards this subject and that's a tough thing for the for the prosecution but again i thought it was interesting that n- numerous times he talked about well if the prosecution had you know prepared us for this idea or if they had presented this so he he really did leave open the idea that the prosecution could do a better job and you know answer those questions they had
0: yeah, I heard that again. I felt it was slightly disingenuous, and I don't think he was consciously disingenuous about it. I just felt that it betrayed a particular bias that the juror had on how to look at these kinds of allegations and at how to look at discrepancies in testimony. And honestly, you know, when you bring a case that's this far removed from the allegations, and you're trying to. Def- define forcible rape as distinct from rape by intoxication, it becomes very nebulous. And so there's plenty of room if you want to bring reasonable doubt into it to find that reasonable doubt.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it's kind of the nature of that charge and what the defense attorney's generally going to do is that what did we hear from this jury foreman? That the jury was concerned about what these women said they did. You know, that they contacted Masterson afterwards. That they said things, certain things to him. And the defense has done a very good job taking the focus off of Danny Masterson and putting it on these women and how they had reacted, what they had done. You know, Jane Doe 4 also testified. She's an actress. Her name is Trisha Bessie. She gave me permission to identify her. Her allegations were not charged in the case, but she was brought in as a past Bad acts witness, and she had two incidents, and the second of which involved a flask that he gave her, and she took a couple of sips, and then she was suddenly practically incapacitated. And she says he then raped her. But the focus that Cohen put on it was you know, a month earlier he had raped her, so why did she? Allow him to come upstairs to his apartment. Well, just this morning, I've published an interview with Trisha Vesey, and she talks about that what the jury and what the trial just seemed to lose is this idea of coercive control. And also that she was terrified of Scientology's influence, and if she said no and if she didn't allow him to come upstairs. So, you know, that's something that the prosecution has to do a lot better job with. That, you know, blaming these women for allowing Danny and to come in the house or to calling him up afterwards just sort of erases his role in violently violating these
0: women. Yeah. Do you have any insight into whether the prosecution is going to bring the case again or whether there's any dispute about whether they're going to take it to trial again?
1: I spoke to Deputy DA Mueller that day after they had spoken to the jury and he indicated that they were ready to proceed. The retrial has been set for March 27th. Now, my understanding is that he and Deputy DA Anson need to present their Case to their bosses and need to get a green light from them. And I think that's what we're waiting for right now. I mean, everything I've heard suggests that they really want to get back in there again and that they have learned after talking to the jury and, you know, they understand some things that they could have done better. So I think they're anxious to try it again. And my understanding is the prosecution tends to do better on a retrial. But again, you know, if it's Cohen, if it's the same defense attorney, like you said, he'll focus on the same things. And now he'll have not just things they said in 2004, in 2017, but also they'll have testimony from the previous trial. So he will obviously attack things the same way. But I think, like I said, just from that one interview of the jury foreman, I saw numerous things that I realized the prosecution could fix in all three cases. So I don't know. I think they feel that they can do that, but they'll have to obviously get a green light from District Attorney Gascon.
0: Well, again, Tony Ortega, thank you for being with us. Why don't you tell folks, once again, where they can find you? Sure. Please come to TonyOrtega.substack.com.
1: Sign up for the free emails there. I put stories up every day and uh, videos and podcasts, and it's all about Scientology. So if you're interested in Scientology, come on by. Tony,
0: again, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Carrie. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Make sure you follow or subscribe to this feed as we await a jury verdict in the trial of Harvey Weinstein. And also, tune in after the new year as we resume Season 6 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrisone. You can find Tony Ortega's writing and sign up for his email list at TonyOrtega.Substack.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at at- Tony Ortega 94. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Ann This episode was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.